Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 190. We'll finally conclude the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 147 through 150 and follow with some thoughts about ancient musical instruments and notation. Psalm 147 offers a praise to God and for all the things God does for humanity. Quote, Builder of Jerusalem, Adonai, Israel's scattered ones he gathers in, healer of the brokenhearted, he binds their painful wounds. God not only traverses the galaxies, counting the stars in the firmament, God also deals with the most mundane, minuscule matters. Quote, Adonai sustains the lowly, casts the wicked to the ground. God also makes sure the rains come at the right time to produce food for all living things. And bonus, God also protects Jerusalem and its inhabitants and shares the Torah with an only a select bunch. Quote, he tells his word to Jacob, his statutes and laws to Israel. He did not thus to all the nations, and they knew not the laws. Hallelujah. Psalm 148 now includes the universe in the chorus of voices rising up to praise God. Quote, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you stars of light, praise him, utmost heavens and the waters above the heavens. And if that's not enough, all the terrestrial creatures, humans and beasts are getting in on it too. Quote, wild beasts and all the cattle, crawling things and winged birds, kings of earth and all the nations, princes and all leaders of the earth, Young men and also maidens, elders together with lads, let them praise Adonai's name, for his name alone is exalted. Psalm 149 enjoins us to, quote, sing to Adonai a new song, his praise in the faithful's assembly. This song is a joyous one, including dance, the timbrel, and the lyre. It also includes the faithful who, quote, delight in glory, sing gladly on their couches, exultations of God in their throat, and a double-edged sword in their hand to wreak vengeance upon the nations, punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings in fetters and their nobles in iron chains, to exact from them justice as written. It is grandeur for all his faithful. Hallelujah. Well, that took a turn. Psalm 150 concludes the cycle of praises and the book of Psalms itself with a raucous symphony. There are no requests here of God or expressions of thanks or praise for an act of kindness. All there is here is praise, full stop, which begins on high in the, quote, vault of power and concludes down in the dirt with all us mortals. But in between, we feast our ears on shofar blast, the lute, the lyre, the timbrel and dance, strings and flute, and the crash of cymbals. And on that euphonious note, here endeth the lesson. So it goes without saying that we can only guess how the psalms sounded. I'm not referring to how the words sounded. We have the text, as garble as some of it may seem to be. I'm looking at you, Psalms 9 and 10. No, what I'm referring to is the musical accompaniment. Tanakh period musical instruments like drums or string instruments were generally made of organic materials and soil conditions in the land of Israel were generally not favorable to their survival. Archaeologists have found metal cymbals, bells, pottery rattles, bone and ivory clappers, 
but they also found figurines, frescoes, mosaics, pottery decorations, graffiti, images on coins, which portray music being played. We also have artifacts from neighboring societies like the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, and Mesopotamians. But the Tanakh itself provides a rich source of knowledge about the musical life of ancient Israel, except, as I said, it's on mute. And as rich of a source as it is, it's pert near impossible to put Tanakhic evidence into chronological order for reasons. The biggest being that late sources often attribute things to earlier periods that couldn't have existed in the earlier period. In other words, anachronism. For example, the chronicler of Divrei Hayamim, we'll get to him eventually, reports the ordering of the temple music by King David. Some of the details, like the prominent status of the Levitical singers, which almost overshadows that of the Kohanim, the priests, are probably a projection back from the chronicler's own time. Then there's also the mythical past, specifically the story of Yuval in Genesis chapter 4, who was, quote, the ancestor of all who play the Kinor and Ugav. There are some curious omissions, like the role of music in the Mishkan, the Porta temple schlepped around the desert by the wandering Jews. The only musical allusion there was the bells on the tunic of the high priest, But the bells there probably had no musical function. If anything, it was meant to indicate if the high priest had suddenly died during his service. There's some mention of trumpets, but those trumpets served mainly to direct the people's movements when they encamped and decamped. The lyres, drums, rattles, and cymbal music that accompanied the going up of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with David in the lead was probably parade music, celebratory and fun, not ritualistic, and the inauguration of Shlomo's temple in the first chapters of the first kings lacks mention of any soundtrack. The Tanakh identifies about 19 terms for musical instruments. Psalm 150 enumerates seven or eight, depending on if you count the tzilzaleh shama and the tzilzaleh truah as two separate cymbal instruments. All right, so let's whip through the list, shall we? We'll start with the ones featured in Psalm 150. The shofar is a ram or wild ovine horn and the only instrument that all Jews still use today in the context of a religious space. It's probably the same as the keren and keren hayovel that's mentioned elsewhere in the Tanakh, like in the book of Joshua. The nevel is a type of lyre, perhaps originating in Asia Minor, constructed differently from the kinor lyre, which is a larger and therefore more deeper toned. The nevel asor, or the asor, was probably a slightly smaller nevel with ten strings only. The tof is a shallow round framed drum, frequently played by women and associated with dance. What the minim refer to is unclear. Safaria renders it as a lute, but the lute didn't command a place in the Canaanite or Israelite repertoire. The ugav is equally unclear. Safaria renders it as a pipe as do most medieval commentators, but scholars today are skeptical about this identification. The tzilzalim, as I said before, are symbols. The ones found in excavations were made of bronze in the form of plates with a central hollow boss and with a metal thumb loop. The average diameter of the finds is about 12 centimeters. Are these symbols the same as the man-amim mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David processes up to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant? Possibly as 1 Chronicles 13 tells, retells actually, the procession and swaps out Man Amim with Mitzil Taim, which are also symbols. 
The same might apply to the Shalishim referenced only once in 1 Samuel chapter 18, which were played by women. And now the rest. The Khalil is a double pipe wind instrument with the mouthpieces probably of a single reed type and probably made up of one melody pipe and one drone pipe. It's a folk and popular instrument and was used for rejoicing and also in mourning ceremonies. I guess it resembles the modern clarinet the most. The Chatzotzra is a trumpet made of precious metal, generally silver, blown by the priests. It was used in the sacrificial ceremony in war and in royal coronations. The kinor is a stringed instrument of the lyre family, constituted by a body, two arms, and a yoke. The Canaanite kinor, which is probably the same as used by the Israelites, is asymmetric, with one arm shorter than the other, and its body is box-shaped. The instrument was probably 50 to 60 centimeters high and sounded in the alto range. We know this because we have some artifacts from Egypt that survived the centuries. We talked about the Pa'amon before, the little bells in the context of the high priest and the Mishkan or tabernacle. The book of Daniel chapter 3, which is written in Aramaic, describes an orchestra at the court of the Babylonian king. And this orchestra includes the Karna or Shofar, the Mashrokita, a whistle or pipe of some kind, the Ketros or lyre, the Sabecha, which is also a stringed instrument, the Psantrin or zither, and finally the Symponia, which parallels the Greek Symphonia, which in itself means only the sounding together. Many of the psalms began with an invitation to music like let us go and sing or sing a song to Adonai a new song, but their superscriptions are also alluded to what scholars think are musical elements like mizmor and shir, which were also combined as mizmor shir or sometimes shir mizmor. Or the term lamnatseach, which has often been thought to mean to the choir master. And then there are those phrases prefixed by Al, which I guess translates as upon or on, such as Al Ayelet HaShachar in Psalm 22, or Al Hashminit in Psalm 6, which literally means upon the eighth. There are others more which are untranslatable, even literally, like the term Selah, which appears at the end of certain verses in many psalms. And yet, despite the preponderance of all these musical instruments and references to music, we don't know how any of this or any other Jewish music sounded for millennia, until we encounter a certain Norman proselyte named Ovadia who lived in the 12th century. Ovadia was not his original name. It was Johannes or Johannes. He was born in Opido Lucano, a small town in Italy, to a Norman aristocrat named Drew. As his twin brother Roger was destined for the knighthood, Johannes would eventually be tracked into the church. As a youth, he had heard the story of Andreas, the Archbishop of Bari in Italy, who famously converted to Judaism, as well as accounts of Jews refusing to convert to Christianity and succumbing to the violence of the First Crusades. These stories seemed to have made an impression on him, but it was only after a dream he had, after he took his priestly vows, that inspired him to convert to Judaism. He adopted the name Ovadia because of the tradition that the prophet Ovadia was an Edomite convert to Judaism. 
He left Italy for Constantinople, where he probably began his studies and subsequently moved to Baghdad, where he lived in a hekdish or poorhouse in the synagogue while he studied Hebrew, the Torah, and the prophets. There he became acquainted with the poverty and the desperate circumstances of Baghdad Jewry and the tragic end of two recent pseudo-Messianic movements. In 1113, he left for Aleppo, Syria, where he received a letter of recommendation from Rabbi Baruch ben Yitzchak, head of the yeshiva, verifying the details of his conversion. Later, he traveled to northern Palestine and met the Karaite Shlomo HaKohen, a false messiah, in 1121. Eventually, Ovadia ended up in Egypt and settled in Fashtat, or Old Cairo, where it seems he lived out the rest of his days. Because of his close proximity to the Ben Ezra synagogue in Fashtat, his papers ended up in that synagogue's Geniza, which included fragments of his autobiography. A Geniza is a storage area in a synagogue or cemetery designated for the temporary storage of worn-out Hebrew language books and papers on religious topics prior to proper burial. The Cairo Geniza contained around 280,000 documents, from 870 CE to the 19th century, this trove of documents came to the attention of Western scholars by Scottish twin sisters and scholars in their own right, Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson, at the end of the 19th century. They alerted soon-to-be-famed American conservative rabbi Solomon Schechter, who rushed to Cairo to ensure that Cambridge University, where he taught Talmudic studies, would beat rival Oxford in the race for ownership of the documents. The Geniza contained everything from divorce documents to children's doodles to rabbinic responsa, to-do lists and bills of sale, sat alongside books and parchment of magic spells. In the eventual index compiled of the documents, over 35,000 individuals are mentioned. This includes about 350 prominent people, among them Maimonides and his son Avraham, 200 better-known families, and mentions of 450 professions and 450 types of goods. Documents came from or referred to Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, but not Damascus or Aleppo, Tunisia, Sicily, and even India. Cities mentioned ranged from Samarkand in Central Asia to Seville, places in Morocco to the west from Aden north to Constantinople. Europe not only is represented by the Mediterranean port cities of Narbonne, Marseille, Genoa, and Venice, but even Kiev and Rouen are occasionally mentioned as well. Now, keep in mind that the genre of memoir or autobiography was uncommon within world literature at the time, especially when the author was a relatively ordinary person, and Ovadia's work is arguably the first example of an autobiography written in Hebrew in more than 1,500 years. The last existing example before Ovadia was the work of Nehemia, whose autobiography we'll read in episodes 227 through 230. Ovadia's memoir vividly describes his life and travels, including his upbringing in the Catholic Church, his conversion to Judaism, his understanding of the Crusades, his memorable meeting with a Karaite who implied that he was the long-awaited Mashiach, and much more. But as if this wasn't enough for historians to ponder, they found musical compositions. They are the only known examples in all of Jewish history of Hebrew prayers set to Gregorian chant. If you want to see all the manuscripts for yourself, you can check them out online. I'll, I'll put the link on our page at anchor.fm. 
Ovadia knew the musical traditions of the church very well. The first composition, entitled Mi al Chorev, or Who Stood on Mount Chorev, refers to Moshe's final moments before God took him up to heaven. It consists of six rhymed couplets set to a similar melody, ending with the refrain Ki Moshe, or Like Moshe. Based on the text's double acrostic form, Researchers suggest that the author of the fragment was an 11th century poet by the name of Amr ibn Saab. Researchers also identify the musical notation as originating from the 12th to 13th century Southern Italian school of Lombardic notation, later known as Beneventine notation. The result, which we'll hear shortly, is simply stunning. It's the earliest example of Jewish music teleporting us back to some time in the first half of the 12th century. This is what Judaism sounded like 900 or so years ago. One can only imagine what the Psalms must have sounded like more than two millennia in the past. And so to conclude our symphony of Psalms, Mi al Chorev, as notated by Ovadia, the Norman proselyte.
like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 191, when we begin the Proverbs with chapters 1 through 3.